Our Second Chance, Part Two. We give babies and newborns unlimited resources with no expectation of return.、Mm-hmm. This is the way we are born into the world. From the very beginning, we are receiving. We are getting gifts, and unfortunately, as soon as we get to the age where we can start to appreciate that. The education completely shifts around and says, "Now understand that there is nothing for free in this world. So、mm-hmm. you better get an education so that you can get a job, so that we can grow this economy to provide more jobs, to grow the economy to to pro- well just just get educated." You're listening to the Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode one hundred and forty-nine: The Undefinable Spirit. Andrew Welch. Our second chance. Come on in, have a seat. Join the conversation. Hello, and welcome to TSP One Forty Nine, Part Two of our podcast trilogy with author Andrew Welch in our ongoing discussion on his most recent book, Our Second Chance, which is a sequel to his first book, The Value Crisis, published six years ago. Two weeks ago, in recording Part One, we focused primarily, though not exclusively, on the idea of the proposal of UBI or Universal Basic Income. That podcast, TSP One Forty Eight, is currently available and has been very well received. And motivated us even more in bringing you part two today, where the central point of our discussion will be the gift economy or qualitative economy. Glad to have you back, Andrew. Hey, glad to be here. Welcome. So, before we dig a little deeper in today's conversation, I have a sort of a two-part question. The first is, please explain what the term you refer to in your book as the gift or qualitative economy means. That's a good question, and I think in order to answer that, we have to. Kind of step back a bit and think about what is a gift, because a lot of people when first come to mind, okay, it's something you give away for free. It's an object. It's sometimes wrapped up in a nice box with wrapping paper with a ribbon on it. Well, no, it goes beyond that. I mean, if I offer you a meal, I guess that's sort of a gift. Well, what about if I offer you a job? Is that a gift? So it becomes a little problematic, and I struggled with this for a while before landing on the epiphany, if you will, that a gift is not a thing; it's an action. So if I'm giving a gift, it's not the object that I'm transferring. If it's an object, it might be a skill, it might be a talent. I have a gift for singing or whatever. It's the action. Right. But it's value, and that is what I think of as a gift. So, if we take that back to what is a gift economy, it's really an economy that values a different kind of idea. It doesn't value the things as much as it values the actions that take place, the more qualitative things that we might consider in an economy. And when you consider qualitative aspects of things, then there is the possibility of two things happening. First. You can consider quality as being an attribute of a qualitative economy. Just the idea of a quality item versus a low quality item that could maybe make it more of a qualitative economy. And、right. secondly, there's a possibility that they can exist in the same space. 
Okay. So that's a perfect segue to a quote in your book that I wanted to refer to. It reads, I suddenly had a flash of insight. What if the material value of an object and the value derived from gifting that object were completely complementary? Right. Which means they can coexist, but they're different. So, in other words, if you look at some of the aspects of our economy that involve normal transactions, what you would think would be normal transactions, but the business involved has a qualitative mindset, if you will. They're more concerned about the environment. They're more concerned about... Let's take a farmer's market, for example. Okay. A farmer's market might be considered just a normal part of the regular economy, except that the reason they're there, the kind of transactions you have with them, the way you're willing to pay a little more for something that's grown locally, for that relationship that you have with the person that grew it, for the social experience of being in a farmer's market, greeting your friends makes it a qualitative economy as well, but not for the same values. It's not for the dollar value of the carrots or the money you're spending. It's for those other aspects, the in-between, if you will. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you this, Andrew. You talk about the gift economy being wrapped up more in the action of giving in the transaction, let's say. Yes. Which, to me, puts in mind the idea of that there's also a different intention that's correct. In the giver. That's right. Say, right. So if you take the gift economy to its extreme, if you will, then it is solely action. There is no physical transfer of objects. So donations right. of time and volunteering and library books and all that's okay. There is a library book, but essentially it is part of the gift economy because mm-hmm. you're not paying anything for that. And not just books these days. Man, the things you can take out of a library now is staggering. And so those are all considered part of a gift economy. But what I'm saying is that a gift economy is actually a subset of what I label a qualitative economy where you could have it existing simultaneously. It just values different things, looks at the values in a different way. And in fact, going back to my overall thesis of the value crisis in this book, It's using the human-based qualitative values as opposed to a value that you could put a number on. Right. It's not the monetary value. It's the qualitative value. Okay, let me just follow this up because you tend to come back to this term of human values. But whenever you talk about the gift economy in the book, my mind goes to things like love thy neighbor as thyself. These kinds of statements of compassion that have traditionally come out of traditional religions, if you like, different spiritual traditions. But you don't really go there so much in the book. Can I ask you why you're differentiating this? Oh, I don't claim any special expertise or even really strong interest in the spirituality of what I write about, but I think it's very much relevant that human-based values are definitely the foundation of any spiritual thought or practice. So, What we see if we look back at the history of gift economies is something that's actually slightly different. It's an economy that is not similar to what we have now. It's the idea that people would, in fact, give things away, and that's all they did, without an expectation of getting something back in the short term. 
there was an expectation because it was part of the culture that what goes around comes around. Mm -hmm. So if you look at ancient cultures and so on, indigenous peoples, a lot of them have this idea that you have an economy by giving things away. You have something that people need, you give it to them. And in fact, the wealthiest, most powerful people are the people that give the most. Mm -hmm. Contrast that with today's status quo economy. That's true. I just was thinking of something as you were speaking. I was thinking of as an immigrant growing up in primarily Italian neighborhoods way back in the 60s and 70s. I remember an entire neighborhood of people doing work on each other's homes without ever a dollar being exchanged because you had six or seven different tradespeople living in their respective homes all on the same street. One was a bricklayer, another one was a steel worker, another one was a gardener, whatever. And one guy would come over and build your fence. You'd go over and install his toilet. The other guy would come over and fix your chimney. Yeah. And everything was settled over dinner and a glass of wine. Yep. Yeah. And the understanding was that it was more about the mutuality, the friendship, the relationship. No one ever said, well, I think my fence post is worth more than your toilet install. But somehow, because they were reasonable, hardworking people and understood the value, it would always somehow work out to a fair end. That's right, because there is value and joy indeed mm -hmm. to actually going and helping and working with someone and sharing that task. But there's a second aspect to that, which clicks back into what you often pull up again in terms of the value persona. Value personae, I should say, that a concept I pulled from Robert Reich, and that is that the investor value persona that we all have within us is the one that looks after the future. Uh -huh. And in that particular instance, what you saw in my books is an expression of each of those persons' investor value persona investing in their social network. Yes. Because the idea is if you want to look after your future, well, in the monetary sense, you can put it in the bank and hopefully it'll be there for your rainy day. Or on the qualitative side, you can invest in your networks, in your community, in your circle. Because at the end of the day, as we've said before, you do that investment, you're never going to starve. Okay, well, that's interesting because two things come to mind when you talk about that. One is Ayn Rand and her whole shtick of there are no altruistic acts. They're all selfish in a sense, because if you derive joy in giving somebody something, that's not unconditional, you're getting something back. And another story that relates to that is from a local magazine I read recently where apparently there was a gentleman who owned two barns. One was had fallen apart, the other burned down or something. And the Mennonite neighbors came and helped rebuild a barn using the materials from both barns. But before they did that, and didn't charge him anything, but before they did that, they interviewed him to just ascertain the quality of his humanity, his decency, etc., etc. So the line between conditional and unconditional is an interesting... Absolutely. Well, I think what I take from... When you say there are no altruistic acts, because when you give something, you know, it gives you joy. So you're actually doing it to give yourself joy. What that highlights for me is a key difference between the qualitative or gift economy and the normal economy is that the status quo economy thrives on scarcity. 
It is there to create scarcity and thus up the value of whatever's left. Mm -hmm. The gift economy thrives on abundance so that you can actually say, by giving you this thing, it gives me joy. We both win. So what Ayn Rand was really talking about, although I don't think she actually came to this conclusion, was that if you set your value system right, everybody wins. <laughs> That's a different take on it. It might Ayn be a different Rand. take. <laughs> right. The next thing that we get out of the Ayn Rand thing is that she says it's okay to be selfish. Yes. Because by giving altruistic acts, we get joy, and that's a selfish act. The problem is, I think, for her philosophy, is that by saying it's okay to be selfish, she then carries it back into the old value system and says, right. so it's okay to be selfish in a status quo economy and say, I want all the money. Yep. That's okay and human because we've already established that to be selfish is human. Right. Not the case. Okay. So you're differentiating. Right. But again, going back to your own day-to-day -day living, because obviously this is something you've written about, and I really enjoyed that particular part of the book because it resonated in many ways, apart from memories that I described earlier, but also because there's a certain logic to it to me that makes sense. It's kind of, as you say, win-win. So you've been out of the workforce for 20 years, the regular workforce, not that you have stopped working. Describe the gift economy in your own life in terms of your day-to-day -day application. Right. I've actually had a number of different kinds of experiments with the gift economy in my life. For a start, I have now got myself into a place where I donate a lot of time. So a lot of my time is volunteered out, and I enjoy that. I definitely thrive on the values that we just talked about in terms of, of what comes back to me for that. Mm -hmm. I also find that when I try and mix and match these things, for instance, I had a longtime client down in the United States that paid me very well for computer consulting when I was a road warrior back in my strongly working days. And a lot of that software wanted to be tweaked and modified in the years that I had kind of shut down that end of what I did. And they would sometimes approach me and say, hey, Andrew, could you just go in and make this change for, for this stuff? Or we found a little bug. Can you sort that out? And so on. Mm -hmm. And my thinking was that they had been so generous over the years in what they had done that I would just fix it for them and I wouldn't send them a bill. Right. You know, I'd say it only took me four or five hours to sort this out. I'll just let it go. Right. Didn't go over so well. They were very uncomfortable with that because at the end of the day, I was mixing value systems in a way that they found awkward. Mm -hmm. And in a sense... To say that a gift economy is the easy way out, that you're not paying for the things or, or what have you, is actually, again, just you've got to flip the value system. Because for the person who goes to Amazon and just buys what they want online, cash, out of the bank, transfer, done, they have no relationship with Amazon. Right. And so they're saying, hey, I'm just buying the thing. I worked for that money. Now I'm going to get the object that I get. When you shop locally you actually have to work in a different sense because mm -hmm. there's now an expectation of a bit of a relationship there. You may actually be not obligated, but there's an expectation that you stop and chat to the person who owns the stall at the farmer's market or whatever. So it's a different kind of work. So you can't really mix those very easily. And so my client in the U.S. got uncomfortable with that. In the end, I found different ways of 
experiencing this in my life. I'll give you another example that I actually wrote about in the book. I would sometimes be called upon to do little renovations for people. You know, geez, Andrew, I heard you're pretty handy. I wonder if you could come in and help me with the baseboards mm-hmm. in my house or right. or in, installing this, uh, this plumbing thing that's gone wacky. And at first, I played with this idea of, well, why don't you just pay me what you think it was worth? Mm. Oh, not good. <laughs> not good. Because, again, I'm mixing value systems. People are going, oh, I don't want to underpay you, but I don't want to overpay you either. I don't want to insult you. How do I work this? And I ended up coming up with this idea that when I did work for people, I really don't know what the trades would yep. bill for, but I have some idea. I would give them an invoice for what I'm pretty sure was a lot less than what they'd have to pay for out in the open market. Mm-hmm. Invariably, they would say, oh, don't be ridiculous. And they would cut me a check for more. Mm-hmm. What happened then was that I was able to give them a gift, uh, a really good rate on the work they needed doing. They were able to give me a gift of paying more than what it said on the invoice. And everybody experienced joy from that transaction. So where does that reticence to receive come from? I remember when I was a kid, my parents drummed into my head, you don't take gifts. Like on Hanukkah, our aunts or uncles would come over and they'd give the kids silver dollars. And we were told, do not take that money. And then so there'd be this race around the house with the aunt chasing (laughs) you, trying to put the money in your pocket. You say, no, 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 no. So where does that reticence come from? Could be a number of different things. I can't speak to your particular experience and what culture was being expressed there. But there's a couple of things that come into play. One is that there's an old saying, the miser abhors a gift. And what that means is that someone who is miserly knows full well that when they receive a gift, there is an expectation that they may not be able to reciprocate because they would then have to express a value back. So there may be some of that. There may also be some of this idea that in some cultures, in fact, it is considered proper to refuse a gift three times, two or three times before mm-hmm. you accept it. Right, you right. know, some, some <laughs> uh, South Asian cultures have this idea that you simply refuse the gift two or three times before you actually accept it. And it's all part of the process. Well, it's also pride and ego. You know, yeah. I don't accept charity. I was reading today that a Maasai tribe in 2002 sent 14 cows to the <laughs> United States in response to 9-11. Mm. <laughs> And somebody was saying, why didn't we ever hear about this? There's a cool story here. Yeah. When they dug into it deeper, because I was kind of following this thread, yeah. Cuba sent blankets to New Orleans after the Katrina. Mm-hmm. They were refused. Other South American countries, I can't remember, Central America, was offering aid to the United States, to Katrina, saying, we know floods. We've experienced floods all the time. We'd like to help. Here are the medicines that we set aside in our emergency. Didn't want it did not want to accept any of that aid. The U.S. refused it. Wow. So why? I mean, is it because we are all powerful and to accept aid would be to appear weak? Is it the expectation that we would have to reciprocate, that we'd somehow have a debt that had to be paid? Mm. Who knows? So one of the things that comes to my mind when I'm hearing you both discuss that is that you keep talking about the shifting value systems. Well, we're accustomed collectively to this quantitative system which kind of sets the base for our thinking, because this is what we're habituated to. So if you're used to transacting on the basis of a numeric value, that numeric thing still pops up in your head. 
I've been in many situations. I am in situations right now because I provide service, not material. And service is less tangible. So really, people are paying for your time as much as they are your expertise, Mm -hmm. which is another concept, by the way, we could discuss because (laughs) time is a whole other issue. There goes that Uh, can opener of worms. (laughs) Uh, Because you get into discussions like, well... It only took you five minutes to do, so it's only worth $1.50, even though it took you 15 years to learn it. Part of the problem I've always encountered with gifting is that most people still go back to that system. In their mind, they're going, what is the actual value of that gift, whether given freely or not? So if you say to me, Peter, I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to fix your fence. And in return, I say, well, I'm going to come to your house and do your roof. Now, if we have a good relationship and understanding, neither one of us is going to quibble about which is worth more because the idea behind it is not the actual value. But from a quantitative mode of thinking, you say a roofer makes $120 an hour, a guy that fixes fences makes $15. And what did that just do to both your afternoons of offering each other help? Exactly. Suddenly, it's no longer fun. It's no longer working together. Exactly. Yeah. We could look at this from two different perspectives, actually. The 14 cows I mentioned? Yeah. That's a laugh for some people. They go, what the? 14 cows offered to the United States. How is that supposed to be aid? But you think about Maasai tribes and the culture that they have. And in fact, their religion revolves around cows. Their whole concept of wealth is in cows and children and a balance between those. Cows mean everything to these people. They have almost nothing relative to your average American family, and they were willing to take 14 cows and offer them up to the huge United States, that gesture, that's the gift. It's the action. It has nothing to do with the value of the cows. Humongous gift, for starters, because of what you just described. But more importantly to me, that situation occurs even in the Western world between us. Yeah, absolutely. Apart from the mechanics, apart from even evaluating the values and, and dollar, numeric, or otherwise... You're diminishing the actual act. For example, a person who has only $5 in their pocket offers to buy you a coffee, which is half of everything he has. A very well-to-do person offers to buy you lunch. In relative terms, the fellow who gave you that coffee gave up a lot more. (laughs) Of course, and we all understand this instinctively. I go so far as to say that If any one of us received a card from a child hand-drawn in crayon, that would mean so much more to them than one bought off the rack at Hallmark. And yet we absolutely know that the Hallmark card is, I don't know what they are now, seven bucks. It's been so long since I bought a card. I'm the one with the crayon. We understand that instinctively. And yet we have trouble translating that into the rest of our lives simply because of the predominance of that number-based qualitative economy. What economists say, this is the way the economist thinks about it, is that any gift that you give someone is a destruction of value, in fact. Because if I give you a shirt or a sweater, if it wasn't the one that you would absolutely have bought for yourself, I have lowered the satisfaction value or what they call the utility value, that I'm much better off giving you cash so that you can buy what you want. That maximizes, in economic terms, the utility value of the action. And yet, when you take that to its logical conclusion, it becomes stupid. I value you as a friend, so at Christmas I give you a $100 bill. 
And at Christmas, you say, hey, I value you as a friend. Here's $100 back. <laughs> or actually, you might say, here's 50 back. And then how do I feel? You know? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting you talk about cash and money because I grew up in a culture that that's the way they gift. Mm-hmm. Weddings, whatever the case might be, the gift of money is central to their way of gifting. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of other cultures or people of another background, they would say, oh, that's a lazy way of giving a gift. Like, you don't have to do anything. You just pull $100 out of your wallet and you put it in an envelope and away you go. You can take that position. But if you understood the culture, part of it also comes from the fact that they also believe that the money allows you to use the money for the things that you need. The economist was right. I'm going to take a guess at this. That's very common at weddings and so on. Do you see it so much at Christmas? No. Right. Because when it's unidirectional, then I can give you cash and you don't have to worry about the value of what you're giving back to me. Right. Right. So we don't get into that cycle. And and in fact, the economists are right that, hey, I'm giving great value with you being able to, at a wedding, buy the things you need for your new home without being forced to use the crockery that I came up with that I thought you might like. Or have 15 toasters. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, I give cash. Not as a birthday gift, not as a Christmas gift, but if I know that there's somebody in need that is really at the bottom of the heap at the moment and really needs to be bailed out, I have no problem in cutting them a check. Yeah, right. And as a matter of fact, one of the things I talk about with guaranteed basic income is the idea that it is much more empowering and dignified for a government to go to the people in need and say, here's the cash, you know where it has to be spent. Mm -hmm. That's maximizing the value, the utility value of that cash. Okay, let's go from the individual to the corporation now, because you talk about corporations in the book. How do corporations who are so caught up in the quantitative economy, how can they mesh with the qualitative economy in a balanced and fruitful way? Right. It's an evolution. And so in order for us to get to that point where corporations have that value system, there are some stages in between. And what I talk about in the book is how you can actually have a qualitative economy, not by corporations giving things away, but by honoring qualitative values. In other words, if I'm selling you cheap crap that was made in some foreign country at the lowest possible price Mm -hmm. with the idea that it's disposable and you're gonna throw it out as soon as possible so I could sell you a new one, that's not a qualitative economy. But if you are producing quality goods that you know are repairable, if they break down, that will last a while, that honor qualitative values, you are in fact being a participant in a qualitative economy at a certain level. Again, it's not a black and white thing. There is a gradation, if you will. And one of the examples I give actually is acquiring a book. There is a gradation on that scale from quantitative to qualitative of how you would acquire a book. At the most quantitative end, you steal it Mm. without being caught. That's the most quantitative value thing you could do. You get the book for free, it didn't cost you anything. Maybe you buy it online. Maybe you buy it at a major chain moving down the scale. Maybe you buy it at a local bookstore. Maybe you get it through a library. Maybe you get it by exchanging books with a friend. Maybe a friend gives you the book. Maybe a friend gives you the book with a personal note inscribed in it. Maybe a friend wrote the book for you. 
yeah. as the most qualitative thing that you could do. So there's this whole spectrum that we can operate That was on. beautiful, by the way. I loved that. I, I was actually getting the image as you were saying it. Yeah. Sorry to continue. Yeah, that's it. Basically, that there is this spectrum that we can travel going from quantitative to qualitative values, and they can all exist at the same time right now. So, for example, at the corporate level, when a McDonald's, let's say, establishes a Ronald McDonald house for kids. Is that a level of the gift economy? I think so, to a certain extent. I mean, that's certainly a corporate donation. Ayn Rand would say, yes, but they're getting a tax credit for all of that. So, (laughs) Absolutely. Well, well, maybe if you didn't feed the kids what you're feeding, we wouldn't need a Ronald McDonald (laughs) (laughs) But even corporations, it's very difficult for the large corporations to wrap their heads around this because they are specifically programmed to ignore human values. That's not in their legal mandate. But as you work your way down the scale, small businesses and so on, can incorporate a lot of these qualitative values. They can have the relationship with you. And even something as simple as over-delivering on expectations is a qualitative sense, right? You're bringing joy to the consumer uh, beyond just the actual thing that they're getting. And in line with what Harry was talking about, which is where my brain was going as well, in terms of the environment in which you're applying a lot of these value systems, when you think of a rural area versus a city or a highly densely populated, very kind of commercial, almost like comparing the northern U.S. to the southern U.S. or northern Italy to southern Italy kind of idea where you have two fundamentally different business bases. Right. For example, here in Orangeville, it's a small community. We know each other. We see each other on the street. There's a totally different relationship to begin with, which probably makes the transition somewhat easier in that there's a connection. I know your person, I know your family. So these situations would seem to be easier to apply in a smaller community. They are, and and not just easier to apply, but one affects the other. If I'm operating a small store and I know you or Harry, and I'm selling you something, I don't wanna sell you crap. Right. Right. I'm much less likely to give you junk that's going to fall apart in a month. And if it does and you bring it back, I'm going to be pretty ashamed about it. And I want to give you, you know, a replacement. So I think where you were headed is how do we bring that into a more urban setting where you don't have that kind of relationship? And that's a really good question. I think that one of the problems we get into with corporations in general, as you move up the scale, is that their accountability drops to zero Mm -hmm. to the point where they're not even operating out of the same country. They're not responsible or accountable to the same government that's in the state where you're buying the stuff. And in fact, when you look at the free trade agreements that we have going now, you actually have corporations in China that, let's say, that can sue the Canadian government because the Canadian government passed environmental laws Mm -hmm. that were considered to be harmful to the Chinese corporation bottom line. And these tribunals take place in secret And what the Mm -hmm. heck, you know? Mm -hmm. So all accountability goes out the window as you expand from that local bubble. You know what's fascinating to me is during this time of COVID, when you look at the whole range of responses in the community, from the corporate sectors, etc., it's really the community that has really emerged as being the center of the qualitative economy because you have these care-mongering groups that have sprung up locally. The Red Cross, well, it's an established group, but deep into it now. And all of these people suddenly gifting each other to help support us through this storm, this catastrophe. But I haven't seen that so much at the corporate level, which I find interesting. 
In fact, you will see quite the opposite. I think we talked last time about how some corporations were actually profiting, not in spite of, but because of the pandemic. You also have corporations that are going to the government for their bailouts and so on. BASF, big uh, chemical corporation, got a billion pounds from the UK government, turned around and gave dividends out to their shareholders, three billion pounds. So the math is quite simple. That Mm -hmm. billion pounds went directly to the shareholders and so on. Same thing, I think, in Ontario with the long-term care homes. Mm -hmm. People with an incredibly embarrassing death rate were getting bailouts from the government because they were profit-based. And maybe the fact that they were profit-based had something to do with the death rate. Who's to say? We're not allowed to question that anymore because they passed laws saying that everyone's off the hook for that. But let's not go there. <laughs> yeah. And of course, this all goes back to the whole idea that the corporation has no emotion or has no human connection. That's right. So how do we turn that around? Very slow evolutionary process. But it is happening. There are now corporations, they call them B corporations or benefit corporations, where people are actually setting up their business entity with the intent that they will act in a socially responsible manner and that that will be part of their whole decision-making process. Mm-hmm. And it's being set up from the very beginning that way. It's not lip service the way McDonald might say, we're going to set up Ronald McDonald House. It's actually being set up for that purpose of being socially and ecologically responsible. Sure. And even discussions like this, bringing awareness to things goes a long way. Because ultimately, we all know here that corporations, whatever they're producing, we're buying. And if we're not buying, they're not producing. Absolutely. So the whole premise of even attempting to shift the thinking, it has to come from us. Yeah, it has to come from us, but it also has to come from the higher levels of the relationship between corporations and government. Mm. If your government is owned by the corporations, you're not going to get anywhere. Right. right? Are you actually saying that in a way... We have to shift from a GDP that is numerically based to more like the Bhutan model of a GDP, which is more a happiness based. It, yeah, shift in that direction. In a sense, it depends on how your GDP is being used. It's a measure. So it provides useful information for tweaking economies and controlling things and seeing where we're going. That's fine. But it is used as a scorecard. If a government stands up there before an election and says, GDP beforehand was this, afterhand is this, we are a better government, that's ridiculous and false. Mm -hmm. Because as we all know, or should know, a GDP is bumped up by war, it's bumped up by pestilence, it's bumped up by all of the things, the crime rate, prisons, all of those things add to the GDP of the economy. Actually, while you're on that, why don't you spend a minute or two on that? Because I think the understanding of GDP... For a lot of people, it's just a term that they hear all the time, but they don't really understand what it consists of. Right. So very basically speaking, it's the overall production of a country, what they are producing countrywide as a nation. And so it adds up all the things that they can count. It adds up all of the widgets produced. It adds up all of the salaries. It adds up all the services provided and all the transaction of money which includes the money spent on arms that are sent to Saudi Arabia or what have you. It includes the wages that go into prisons. It includes the money spent on ambulances when we have traffic accidents and fires and all of that stuff. It includes all of these things that we perhaps don't value as a society as much as some of the things that it does not include. It doesn't measure all of the things 
that we do provide value for. It doesn't measure all of those unquantifiable things, the volunteerism in our communities, the single parent staying at home and looking after the child, the level of joy in a community, level of health and well-being, our suicide rate, none of that is counted as GDP. And in fact, it should be, not in terms of GDP, but it should be on the scorecard of a government. When you're asking how a government is doing, you should be asking how many people are taking their own lives in that country? Mm -hmm. So when you talk about Bhutan, that had a different concept that they came up with where they decided they were going to measure gross national happiness. It was a weird concept, but they actually managed to come up with a way of indexing this and tried to make decisions as a country that would be based on those principles. Not so whacked out, even in Canada, we have an index of well-being and so on. The United Nations has pushed this concept of measuring social index and well-being as an important critical component of a government scorecard. It's always referred to when you say the best countries to live in. Exactly. When they say best countries to live in, look at the list and compare it to the GDP list. They're not the same. Right. Yes, here's another question. How do we get there from here is the question. I mean, at an individual level, the first word that popped into my mind when I was thinking about this problem is the word gratitude. If there's no gratitude for life, for having this life, it's very hard to give in a way. Would that be accurate? Would that be a starting point? Absolutely. And I'll tell you, the best practical way of implementing that starting point is what we talked about last week. Hmm. A guaranteed basic income. Because in a sense, that lays the platform of a whole society as being gift-based. Right from the very beginning, we're saying, you have value as a human being. Mm -hmm. We're going to recognize that value by saying, your survival is a given. It's on the house kind of thing. And when you take that step, I suspect... A whole lot of things flow from that. We get this idea that each person has value and we experience gratitude from our very earliest working age. Interesting thing about that, in fact, is that we don't question the fact that we give babies and newborns unlimited resources with no expectation of return. Mm -hmm. This is the way we are born into the world. From the very beginning, we are receiving. We are getting gifts. And unfortunately, as soon as we get to the age where we can start to appreciate that, the education completely shifts around and says, now, understand that there is nothing for free in this world. So Mm -hmm. you better get an education so that you can get a job so that we can grow this economy to provide more jobs to grow the economy, to, to pro- well, just, just get educated, right? I mean... <laughs> well, how did we get to that point? Why are we there, is the question. I'm guessing that we didn't take a wrong turn. I think it's just part of the evolution of us as a species, that initially we had to go through this stage. I know one writer, uh, Mike Nickerson, loves this analogy that in order to get to the butterfly... We have to go through the caterpillar stage. Mm. We have to go through that stage where we do nothing but consume and consume everything in sight until we reach that level where we say, enough, we're going to build our cocoon and emerge as the butterfly. Well, perhaps pandemic lockdown is our cocoon. Mm -hmm. We can only hope. (laughs) And that's a good way to kind of wrap this up. And I was going to ask you, Recently, there was in the news, and we spoke about the UBI two weeks ago, 
that this is really being enacted now. There's a bill out, is there not? Is there yes. I keep trying to find out. I write to my MP and so on and say, so what is the status of this? Not really getting a good handle on it. Private members' bills are a little iffy as to when they show up, where they go on the order papers. Probably of greater significance is the fact that the Liberal Party, the reigning government now, just passed into their party platform this idea of a universal basic income and, mm -hmm. and various other really good news stories out of that. That being said, they had the same thing about electoral reform. That didn't go anywhere. So fingers are still crossed that okay. maybe this time there will be enough momentum from the bottom that we can actually see this being implemented. I think it's a total game changer. I think it just changes the whole landscape, what we're building on. So, Andrew, what do you think we should talk mm -hmm. about in part three? Mm -hmm. Part three? Well, if we follow the thread of the book, we start getting into... What actually happens when the whole landscape changes? What are the potential social values and so on that we might see emerge from this? Because there are some pretty spectacular or radical ideas that we might be able to start considering. Mm. And in fact, the most interesting thing for me when I started to explore those was that most of them have already been tried and have been proven to work but very much suppressed by the status quo because the status quo benefits the people at the top really well right now. So maybe we could explore that. Sure. Yeah, that actually sounds like a good wrap-up because it ties everything together. Yeah. yeah. So maybe, again, reiterate for people that uh, in the meantime want to access a lot of other information that's related to this and other discussions. Absolutely. They would head over to thevaluecrisis.com. If you go there, there's a real convenient menu drop-down called Podcasts that reference the book. Uh, that's the gift economy. There you go. There's the gift economy. Gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Andrew. And until next time. Hey, looking forward to it. Ciao. Ciao, Peter. Ciao. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Dot com. Thank you for your donation to the SIL podcast.